What's up, Stitches? I'm Isabella Rosner, and this is So What? Ooh, dramatic. This is the third standalone episode of The Pod, and today's episode is an interview with Saif El-Rashidi all about Egyptian textiles. How cool, right? We have not talked about Egyptian textiles at all on this here podcast thus far, so I am very hyped about this. I realize that So What has had a lot of interview episodes lately, and not a lot of episodes of just me talking at y'all, but those sorts of episodes will be back soon, don't worry. I bet you don't miss them anyway, as all these interview guests are just so dang fun! Safe is no exception, as you'll soon see. Before I give you a little info on Safe, social media spiel time. Safe talks about a whole variety of wonderful Egyptian textile objects and other non-Egyptian textile objects, images of which you can see on the So What social media pages. Go to at So What Podcast, S-E-W-W-H-A-T Podcast, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to see the images and a whole bunch of links, too. Or, if websites are more your thing, go to SoWhatPodcast.com. Okay. Now, who is today's guest, Saif El-Rashidi, you may ask? I bet you are. Saif is the director of the Barakat Trust, which supports and promotes the preservation of Islamic art, heritage, architecture, and culture for future generations. According to the Barakat Trust website, quote, Saif El-Rashidi is an architectural historian with 20 years of expertise working on heritage preservation and managing projects related to promoting public engagement with heritage and culture. Saif was formerly the project manager of Layers of London, developed by the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London, project manager at the Guildhall Library, Magna Carta Program Manager for Salisbury Cathedral, the coordinator of Durham's UNESCO World Heritage Site, a team member of the Aga Khan Trust for Culture's Darb al-Amar Revitalization Project in Cairo, and an employee of Ahmad Hamid Architects. Saif has been a technical reviewer for the Aga Khan Award for Architecture's Heritage Projects since 2013 and was on the World Monuments Fund Project Selection Committee for 2019. He is an advisory member of the British Council's Cultural Protection Fund. Since 2018, he has developed a dynamic cultural heritage program in London in partnership with Asia House, Leighton House, the Arab British Centre, London Craft Week, among others. He studied city design and social science at the London School of Economics and history of art and architecture and economics at the American University in Cairo. He is the co-author with Sam Bowker of The Tentmakers of Cairo, Egypt's Medieval and Modern Applique Craft, end quote. So clearly, Safe knows what the heck he's talking about. How rad it is that he's going to share his knowledge with all of us. And without further ado, let's get into the interview. Safe, thank you so much for doing this. I am really, really excited to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I look forward to it. How did you come to study art history and Egyptian textiles more specifically? I'm curious about your journey, your, your okay. life. Path. It's actually an unusual journey because Ooh. I studied economics first. Okay, yeah. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or be, but I know people told me, my parents told me and others, oh, economics is very useful. So I ended up as a young undergraduate studying economics and realizing 
as I took the bus to go to university in Cairo every day, that actually what was, what was captivating my mind were the old buildings I could see on my way to university and on the way back. And because I studied at the American University in Cairo and mm. it had an elective system and a modular system that you could choose courses, I took some courses in art and in art history and I realized that I really was much more interested in buildings and in architecture than in anything else. I also grew up in a family home that was my grandparents had built and it had passed on to my mother and my aunt and uncle. And like with many shared properties, there were many tensions about the future of, of this house that my grandparents had built. And so I had a personal story related to heritage and to architecture and and the and I said I guess a sense of that it was something that that I cared about and when I did an art an architectural history course as an undergraduate I realized that actually that's what I wanted to do mm. um, and so when I graduated from economics I decided that I wasn't going to pursue a career in banking and economics and instead I wanted to take the path of architecture and the arts and Luckily, I knew how to draw well, and I worked for an architect when I graduated who was very creative and did all sorts of design, interior design, furniture. And so that's the path of how I got to art and architectural history, which I then studied. <laughs> um, my textile journey is some, I mean, it's related to the fact that like many people, I like traveling mm. and I like objects and textiles or colorful, I mean, they're very striking. They're very captivating. They're not breakable. They're not bulky. And you can usually find an interesting textile wherever you go. So I think my interest in textiles came from, A, my interest in art and the arts, and B, my interest in having nice objects that mm. I could acquire easily. I think you have just honestly continued the lineage, the legacy of thousands of years of people liking the transportability of textiles you're one part of the large puzzle of like basically how textile techniques and motifs have moved around the world they're bright they're colorful they're eye catching and attention grabbing and you can just pack them in a suitcase mm -hmm. exactly so that's why i like them <laughs> now is my opportunity to uh lightly and hopefully kindly grill you about egyptian textiles because i embarrassingly know like almost nothing if it's possible, can you give me a brief overview of the history of Egyptian textiles? That's a big okay. ask. It Sorry. is a big ask, but I'll try my best. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you later what I'm specialized in. But basically, I think one of the things to think about is that text, I mean, textiles, in addition to providing clothing, which is an essential thing, and furnishings, have always also included an artistic element. And if you look at you're based in London. If you look at uh, pharaonic dress in the Petrie Museum, for example, one of the, probably one of the earliest surviving garments, which is about from 3, 000, around 3000 BC, it comes from Egypt. You can see that it isn't just a utilitarian thing. There's a design to it. There's a, a sense of fashion. It has, a, you know, pleated bits and and so I think that thinking about the history of Egyptian textiles is about not just the practical, but also aesthetics, fashion, taste, mm. and look at what people are wearing in famous wall, in, in wall paintings and, and, and tomb reliefs. And you will see that there's definitely style, there's definitely a consciousness. There are different, there are short 
tunics and long things and thick fabrics and and very fine and diaphanous, almost see-through things. And so I would say that as society develops anywhere, what we wear and how we furnish our homes and what we cover ourselves with develops pretty quickly. And um, it's sometimes surprising how, or maybe it's not surprising, that looms develop pretty early. Um, and with looms, you get certain things that are easy, like lines, and you get mm-hmm. certain things that are difficult, like curves. And, and so I, th- I think from, from a base fabric, you also get how do we decorate textiles? Right. And I would say that Egypt from early on ha- demonstrates many different techniques of decoration, including weaving, embroidery, um, applique work, um, tufting like carpets. And so, I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about Egyptian textiles is that the climate in Egypt has preserved them so well. Mm. And so you can actually see these different forms of textiles that are thousands of years old pretty easily. So the Egyptian, there's a new museum in Egypt, the, Egypt, the Museum of Egyptian Civilization, which just recently, last month, opened the textile gallery. Oh. And if you look, yeah, yeah, you should look it up. The textile gallery has everything from blankets to bed covers to clothes to towels. It even has a piece of pottery with um, a laundry list uh, indicating uh, how many pieces of each thing were going to be sent to laundry. And so, and it has things that look like a label that they're mainly plainish linen, plainish linen, um, which has a kind of emblem at the bottom of the piece of fabric. So it seems from early on in the in, in from ancient Egypt, where flax grown on the banks of the Nile was produced to was used to produce linen. Mm. That from early on there was a sense of what is the quality of what I'm wearing, what thickness is it, what color is it, um, and so. Egypt provides a very fertile place to study the history of textiles because um, many, so many survive. Yeah. And, and I, mean, I was amazed actually to find when I went to see this gallery, actually they hadn't finished it yet and they were sitting conserving various things. There was a woolen blanket um, supposedly from the tomb of one of the pharaohs, Akhenaten. Um, and the, I mean, if you saw it, you might think it was 20 or 30 years old. I mean, it's impossible to believe that it's probably <laughs> several thousand years old. Um, the textiles from Egypt that I'm more familiar with are actually later than the pharaonic period. Mm. I started off being interested in Coptic textiles, so textiles produced when Egypt was predominantly Christian um, around, say, the 3rd, the 4th century onwards. Um, what appeals to me in these in Coptic textiles is what appeals to me in textiles, that they're very colorful. Mm-hmm. The colors are remarkable, but they also, so these are weavings mainly. Um, they depict a range of things from floral patterns to birds and animals to people, including saints. So some of them come from a religious context. Sometimes they're just things people wore. Sometimes they were curtains, but it's not very easy to weave. And to enable, to be able to weave a small bird of three or four centimeters or, an, or a cherub um, in different colors and, and capture expression, I think that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about Coptic textiles is that they're not just patterns, they're not just animals and people, but they're people with big eyes, they're looking in certain directions, 
And some of them have a comic, almost a caricaturish element. Others are very fine and very refined, but there's definitely a sense of the textile weavers having observed the world around them. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a remarkable thing that that you see a relationship with nature, you see a relationship with humans in the way textile weavers have woven things in Egypt from the third century. Given that you're interested in needlework, I'll tell you that needlework is always inseparable from weaving. Mm-hmm. There, there's also a tradition of needlework. Embroidery is something that, I mean, can be very intricate, but is also in some ways easier than weaving because you have a textile service and you sell something on it. So right. we have many, many examples. And as I told you, the colors are remarkable. Sometimes you think, well, how could this really be from the third century? It looks 20 or 30 or 50 years old. Um, I studied history of Islamic art after studying economics and so discovered the late, even later textiles from Egypt, say from the 8th century onwards, um, which initially continue in the classical tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you find early on in the periods of Egyptian history when Islam, when more people are Muslim, is that uh, the rise of writing. Textiles often have inscriptions. A lot of Islamic art has in, has, is inscribed and often the woven into these tapestries, say of the 10th, 11th, or 12th centuries, are blessings, mm. blessing to the warrior, peace and prosperity. So they combine the, the birds and the harpies and the griffins and everything else uh, that you would have found earlier, but they also include writing. And so the writing often tells you much more about the textile, sometimes who it was made for, who it was given to, when it was made, sometimes amazingly, in inscriptions that are perhaps half a centimeter high, you find writing. Um, and Whoa. yeah, so look up Fatimid textiles, for example, and you'll find plenty of examples where you can see the clear evolution of Coptic textiles with the incorporation of new things. Um, I think as we go later and later in time, we find more evidence and more evidence of diversity. One of those things in Egypt is trade, that that perhaps you start off more with fabrics and textiles that are local, where where the plants are local. Increasingly, you find evidence that trade of raw materials produces a wide range of textiles. For example, silk. Um, Egypt is, the climate is warm. Um, You can't really, I mean, mulberry trees don't, it's hard to cultivate them commercially. Mm. It's hard to raise silkworms, but from, say, the 13th century in Egypt, I mean, the territory of what is today Egypt also included Syria and the Levant, which has a cooler climate. And mm-hmm. often you, silk was silk was cultivated in the mountains of Syria and Lebanon, uh, sent mm-hmm. to Egypt, woven and dyed there, and then re-exported to other places. Um, sometimes you find, like I know someone um, who's been studying silks from the Mamluk period, which is the 13th to the 16th century. Um, and from the samples you find in Egypt, you realize that some of them were imported from China. Others were made in Egypt and Syria in the Chinese style. And wow. again, there's another set where they're much more in, in the spirit of Islamic art, where they have 
inscriptions with blessings and, and geometric patterns and other things. So the history of textiles in Egypt is one of, I mean, there's great richness and diversity from early on. There's an incredible mastery of color and of pattern and of uh, representation, but there's also textiles of from early on luxury items. And yeah. one of the things that makes luxury items is that they're exotic and rare and unusual. And so the importation of things that aren't indigenous is always exciting, but Egypt has also exported textiles in huge quantities. And if you look at, archives of medieval documents related to Egypt, you, you can find many that are related to textile merchants, say in Italy, um, or people in Alexandria writing to their agents in Italy about what they're sending and what, uh, what they're receiving. The same for India. So as you correctly pointed out at the beginning of this um, conversation, um, textiles being portable and yeah. being something that you wear and you enjoy have traveled extensively and sometimes very surprisingly. Um, another thing that's, that I think, I mean, I really enjoy is that in archives like the Geniza of the synagogue in Old Cairo, where mm -hmm. many documents with God's name on were preserved, were many letters related to trade. And some of those letters are about textile trade and it, and the, the detail, so I mean, what you can tell is that consumers definitely had very strong tastes about what they liked and what they didn't. <laughs> so some letters say, oh, the yellow of that stole was very nice and deep, but I didn't like the blue and I wanted it to be lighter. So mm. um, you get a sense from Egypt of a society that's very aware, aware of what it's wearing, of how it's furnishing its homes. And, and, I mean, when I did, when I wrote a book about one kind of textile, Egyptian applique work, I realized that textiles were definitely luxury items, that when you read chronicles about protests, for example, often protesters and rebels go and raid the textile shops and take valuable silks and valuable linens and cotton. So um, they're an important part of the economy. Um, they represent, especially clothes and fashion, represent us not just who we are, but who you want to be. And so I think in the thousands of years worth of Egyptian textiles that survive, you really understand the society with its aspirations, its taste, its technical development, because I think that that's another thing. I mean, I'm an art historian, but without technology and evolu the evolution of technology, there is no art. Mm -hmm. um, and in the Egyptian Civilization Museum that I mentioned, there's a very beautiful little model of a textile workshop in the pharaonic period, showing people spinning, people carding, people weaving. Um, and so it's, there's much to reward the interested and curious person in looking at Egypt as a source of textiles. You have just taught me so much and have given me so much to think about. Thank you. There are so many themes that you've just brought up, but I think my favorite and that theme that keeps recurring in the different textiles that you've mentioned is the human, the, the, the people in all of it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love textiles so much and why I think I love needlework, especially because oftentimes needlework does involve inscription and a sort of um, putting in, putting onto 
a fabric, one's own opinions or names or inscriptions. Oh, here's what my house looked like, blah, 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 blah. But what I love so much in everything from the Coptic textiles all the way through is that you can see how people saw the world and how they saw themselves in in imagery, in those sort of Coptic saint figures, which are, they're so cute and very funny. Sometimes I'm like, I know this wasn't supposed to be funny, but I am laughing a little bit in a, in a very charming way. From those depictions of what people looked like to the inscriptions and to the pot with the laundry list on it. <laughs> ah, that's crazy. There's just, um, it just makes it so clear that they were individuals, people with names and ages and hopes and dreams and locations and favorite colors in every part of this, in all sorts of textiles, every step of the way that the humanity of it is so present and in the forefront. So you've kind of covered your favorite Egyptian textiles and you've written a lot about a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So do you have a favorite if you haven't talked about it already, do you have a favorite type of Egyptian textile? Is it the Coptic stuff? Do you have a favorite time period, a favorite, you know, motif? Okay, I'll tell you. So I I love Coptic textiles because of their colors, the vivacity of them, sometimes the caricaturish element. Um, I'm also interested in later things. Mm. And the what I've studied and actually... I think what I know best is applique work mm-hmm. that seems, I mean, we know that it exists from as early on as the 13th century in Egypt, mm. applique cotton work, and it's used, what I've been studying are these appliques used for large tent hangings, used for marquees, for weddings and for processions and for all sorts of festivals. And what interests me about it is that the tradition still exists Mm. Um, yeah there's a street in Cairo called the street of the tent makers and perhaps unusually it's predominantly a male industry or historically many men it's mainly men that that work on it and these were large panels made for ceremonial tents so the sultan or a prince or anyone getting married would would use a, a marquee of maybe 50 or 60 large panels large being say three, four meters wide by maybe six, six meters high, Whoa. all appliqued. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's an amazing tradition. And the tradition is related to creating temporary architecture out of textiles. Mm. And um, One of the things you need to think about as to why this would happen is today, public presence, I mean, I mean you can appear on television or on YouTube or anything else and people can see what you're doing. But historically... If you're organizing an event or if you're an an important person holding an audience, the only way people could see you was actually to see you. And so Mm -hmm. the the form in which you appeared, if you weren't in a building, actually, if you didn't appear in a building, appearing in a magnificent tent in a public square or a public arena was a very good way of people knowing what you're like. And also um, thinking, oh, wow, we must be a very important society if our leader has this magnificent beautiful shimmering tent of different colors and oh, I know with birds embroidered stitched on it and it's towering mm-hmm. and so I've it's quite interesting because it's not costume and it's not fashion but it's what I could say is 
an architectural te textile almost mm -hmm. that is used to produce temporary spaces. And what's, what's exciting about them is that they appear, they wow you and they disappear. And I read an account saying that it was like a field of tulips, these colorful tents that appear in say religious festivals and things like that, but like a field of tulips that blooms and disappears. And then you think, Oh, where did it go? Mm. That's part of what makes it exciting. So I have been studying this tradition for a long time, for maybe 10 years or so, and looking for old examples. Me and a colleague, uh, Dr. Sam Bauker, who's Australian, uh, we wrote a book about the subject. We also, I, I, so I'm interested in the future of textile craft and art. And I think that that's something to think about is where is the place of handmade textiles in a world that has needs to think of economy and mass production and all of that. And you might think, oh, hand, hand work textiles have no place in that world. But actually, I, I would say that they always continue to do so because they're beautiful things. And because so many of us like beauty and like nice clothes and nice tableware and nice linens, I think that there are challenges to the survival of crafts like the one I've been studying, Egyptian applique work called Khayameya in Arabic, but there are also opportunities. And I think that um, I personally feel that hand-woven and hand-worked textiles will continue to be an important part of social life in different contexts. Heck yeah. And agreed. I'm so interested. And I, you like some of these objects survive presumably, right? Uh, yeah. So the earliest ones that I know of that survive are probably from the 13th century and wow. some of them, yeah, I mean, look, I'll send you pictures if you want, but yeah, so, so many of them, so the idea of applique work is that it creates contrast. You sew a red circle on a blue piece of fabric and then add a white line and it creates a textile that you can see from a distance. Mm -hmm. So it's very good for, that's why it's good for tents and banners and things that you're not going to stare at from like two inches away. Yeah. Um, and so there are surviving bits of banners and flags and many with the equivalent of coats of arms ah. uh, of the sultan's cup bearer. So they sometimes have a chalice, a sword, sometimes they're floral patterns. And many, I mean, the ones that Sam Bowker and I started to study were actually from the late 19th century onwards, of which many survive. Some, some are what you might call in the spirit, I mean, Islamic art. So they, mm -hmm. they sometimes have arabesque designs, they often have inscriptions, poetic verses, usually wishing prosperity and bounty and hospitality because mm -hmm. they're, they're used in a domestic setting. And so usually with Islamic art, what you write on something is related to its function. So if you're wearing a dress, it might say, I know, happiness to its wearer. If you're, oh. you have a... A napkin, the napkin might say I know, something to do with you. I, I know, may the food be healthy and delicious and nutritious. And so because the textiles I've been studying are related to their hangings, they're used to create a space. So they're often about welcome, hospitality, and ha may happiness enter and sadness depart. So it's about creating an atmosphere of joy, I would say, and prosperity. So they do survive. Um, as I said, they continue to be made. Um, and for me, I enjoy studying something that is not dead, that, that mm -hmm. it has a, has a history. 
but is still alive. And I should also mention that the other form of textile that we spoke about, Coptic textiles, mm-hmm. um, there's a wonderful weaving school in Cairo, on the outskirts of Cairo, in a place called Haraneya. It's called the Wies- Ramses Wisa Wasif Art Center. And Ramses Wisa Wasif was an Egyptian architect who took an interest. I mean, he came from a Coptic background. He took an interest in creativity and craft and local traditions. And his philosophy was that every child had innate creativity, but that the educational system suppressed it. Mm. And so he bought, bought a piece of land in this village on the outskirts of Cairo, taught children from the village how to weave, um, and they were inspired by what they saw around them. And if you look at the beautiful tapestries that they continue to produce, um, you can see the continuity of Coptic textiles in a very contemporary Egyptian setting. I mean, the colors are amazing. The, the, they just, I think for me, the mark of a great textile is a textile that you can lose yourself in, in just admire. Mm-hmm. It can be very simple, but it can also be so full of details that you never get bored of discovering new things. Totally. And I am going to look up that school and I will include on the So What social media pages images of the tapestries because now I'm very keen to see them. Oh, I'm just, I'm learning so much. Thank you. I love <laughs> knowledge. I love to learn things. Can I ask one more question about the applique work? Yeah, of course. Thank you. These gigantic objects, obviously they were treasured. That's why they survive, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Were, were they reused? So if if some king or ruler was like, ah, oh, we got a wedding procession, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use the old banners, or was it like a one-time thing? No, it wasn't a one-time thing. And actually, they were huge investments. Mm. And so the treasury, for example, there's an account from the 11th century of the treasury of, of the palaces of Cairo, and there's a tent storeroom. And the tent, so the tent storeroom says, oh, there, there are these bits of round tents and these other ones and they're silk and some have lions on and um, and so they were because they cost so much money and they made they took so long to make so they probably took three or four or five years to make these applique mm-hmm. tents and and cost thousands of dinars and and they would have taken lots of workmen so i can tell you just as a way of an example that someone i know commissioned one tent panel three or four years ago. So it was about three meters by four meters in dimension. And it took four men, say three months to make it. So imagine that a Ooh. wedding tent might require a hundred or 200 such panels. Ah! And, and that's, I mean, so you realize why they were continually reused because right. it was such a big investment um, that, I mean, you, you treasured them and, they were handed down and inherited. Sometimes people acquired them from the defeated enemies. So they were also war booty. And if you look at applique work tents from the Islamic world that survive, many of them are in European collections and they were captured in battles and things. Mm. That is so interesting. One thing to think about is mm. that actually the history of European textiles is intrinsically linked to the East. Totally. Deeply. And yes. vice versa, that... that Climate means that you can't, for most, in most cases, you can't produce everything. And so you're dependent, I mean, you produce some things that produce textiles, but you also import. So if you come from a warm country, you might import wool. 
Um, if you come from uh, Northern Europe, silk might have, was often imported. And if you think of things, things like the word Damascene or um, Damascus, I mean, yeah. that, it, it's called Dam Damascene for a reason. And so I think that one of the beautiful things about textiles is that they were so widely shared and widely traded and widely admired. And I mean, many of the textiles that I study come from European collections and Western collections. They were acquired by travelers who thought, oh, this is a beautiful thing, I want it. Mm. Yeah, that that interweaving is so interesting. I mean, like one of the things that I study most often is schoolgirl samplers. And I look mm -hmm. at them from, from the 17th century onwards. Those samplers, samplers made primarily in England, oh, they're basically entire existence to Egyptian textiles. That it's it's always been thought that a lot of the symbolism in these early kind of band samplers, these strips of decoration came directly from Egypt and North Africa and the Middle East. Oh, wow. That's remarkable. Okay. What is your favorite, if you could pick one or a few, what would your favorite textile objects be? Okay. So I'll pick a few. Okay. Yes. Um, I'll pick four. Okay. Great. Great okay. number. Excellent. So the, okay. So the <laughs> first one I'll pick is one that doesn't exist anymore but it was a tent mm. that the sultan of egypt and the mamluk sultan kaid bay had commissioned in the 15th century and it was we know it was applique work because the chronicles tell us that it had beautiful cutout patterns and these medallions that were very impressive and it was used for celebrating for public celebrations it was round and they put it in the main square in cairo and before the actual celebration, people would, they would erect it so people would come and admire it. So even if you weren't invited to the royal banquet, you would come and look at this beautiful thing. Oh, I love that. Part of the reason I love it, or I love what it conveys, is that it was kept in the royal storeroom. And at some point, there was a fire. And the sultan himself came up in tears to see what had happened to his, his favorite tent and apparently sobbed, for sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And after three days, when they managed to put the fire out, his uh, princes came up and said, oh, your majesty, take here, we give you our tents in, as consolation. I mean, it turned out that this, this special tent that he loved very much didn't get burnt. It was the only one that survived and they continued to use it um, for, for, for decades. And... What happened in the 16th century is that Egypt was conquered by the Ottomans who, mm. who, who came to rule Egypt. And one of the things that happened, one of the first things that happened is they cut the tent up into small pieces and sold it um, for oh. curtains. And the chronicler says that it was one of the emblems of the kingdom and that the celebration, key celebrations like the prophet's birthday in which they always used this tent were never the same again because they didn't have it anymore. Oh, oh! What what the, what listeners to this podcast can't see is that when you just explained that, I just scooted far from my laptop and basically just melted into a chair. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's so brutal. Oh, that is so grim. So that's my favorite textile that I've never seen. And oh. given this podcast, I thought, well, yes, yeah, that's a great imagine. one. 65 episodes in and you're the first person to have ever talked about an object that no longer survives. Okay. So congratulations. Thank you. Okay, Keep going. So, so my a second object I love, which is also from Egypt, is a silk carpet produced 
at the same time as the 10th I told you about, in the, probably the 15th, early 16th century, it's now in Vienna. And Egypt has periods where it produces woven, like pile carpets, but for the most part, because it's a hot climate, it doesn't. They produce flat weaves. But this was a period in the 15th century where the 16th centuries, they, they excelled at producing these very beautiful uh, pile carpets. Um, they're unusual in that they tend to have a geometric design and within the geometric design of floral patterns. So if you look from far, you'll see a geometric design. If you look closely, you'll see that actually all of the geometry is filled with leaves and trees and plants. And how cool! in some ways it responds to the architecture. You find the same in architecture, but really what makes this carpet in Vienna beautiful and memorable to me is the subtlety of the color, that it's almost mm -hmm. shimmering because, well, because it's silk, but it has these beautiful purples and reds and, and it lends itself to close analysis. And just, I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. So look it up, the silk, Mamluk silk carpet in Vienna. The reason that textiles like that survive from the 15th century is that people from the onset could see that they were beautiful and mm. people have never stopped seeing them as beautiful things. Um, and so that I don't seem too nationalistically Egyptian. <laughs> you can be though, that is fine. You okay. have a very rich textile history. <laughs> okay, so my third, my third okay. textile is also a carpet. Ooh. But it's, it's actually at the VNA. You can go and see it. The Ardebil carpet. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But the it was made. What is it called? The Ardebil carpet. And it was made. If you go to the VNA, the Islamic art department, you'll see it. No, it's, it's wonderful. It was made in the 16th century. Um, like many things, it has a small inscription about the person that made it or commissioned it and who talks about the bounty of being in this beautiful, in the embrace of this wonderful carpet. Um, I think what's so fascinating about it to me is the details. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, it follows a structure. It has a medallion and, and quarter medallions, and it has two lamps woven into it. And so it has a structure, but the more, the, the more closely you look, you realize that there are slight, slight, uh, differences in between different bits, like one lamp is larger than the other. So mm. I think that one of the things that, to me, many great textiles have is variation. That, mm -hmm. that your eye can never be bored if the more you look, the more you discover something, that one flower is blue and the other one is pink, and things like that. It's The scale of it is incredible. I also like the fact that it was made, as was often the case, that the best art was made, was commissioned by patrons to give us gifts to places that they thought were important. So in this case, it was found in a shrine. It might not have been made for a shrine. It might have been made for another religious building. But um, there's this sense of we're producing a wonderful thing for a wonderful place. Um, what many people don't know is there's actually there were two of these carpets. The other one is in, in America. Um, it's not in as good a condition, but I mean, it's... So, so I think that often you think, oh, I produced this one amazing thing. I'll never be able to do anything like it. But sometimes you can. Sometimes it is possible to do a sequence or a series of slightly, of similar but slightly different magnificent things. So I chose the Ardabil carpet because I really love it. Whenever I go to the Victorian Albert Museum, I have to go and see it. Um, but also I thought, well, 
it's easy for you to go and see it, given that you live in London as well. And I think that's true. Um, Thank you. I think it's also a nice reminder about the importance of museums as places where we can, as custodians of beautiful and wonderful and exceptional things. So my fourth textile Ooh, yeah. is from the Wisa Wasif Art School. It's an early tapestry called The Tree of Life by a man called Faik Nicola. And the colors, I mean, it has these trees with birds and pomegranates and they're all intertwined. It has a very beautiful palette of blues and oranges. Ooh. And whenever I see it, I always think, oh, I wish I could just live in this tapestry. It's like so, so captivating. But I think also for me, the, this art school, I mean, the philosophy behind it makes it special. The idea of innate creativity, of creating or establishing a craft that, that enabled village weavers and who started off as children to earn their livelihood doing beautiful things inspired by what was around them. So there's also the social and economic aspects, but mm. I can never fail to, whatever I go, I always think if I could choose one thing from this magnificent place, what would it be? <laughs> it's always, I've gone there ever since I was a child with my parents, and it's always this one tapestry that I love more than the others. I love that. Well, there you, it's easy decision-making for you. If you were to secretly steal one object, there you go. Not that you would, but if you could, if you had yeah. to, what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Well, I spoke a bit about the fact that I think that there's still a place for hand stitched mm -hmm. and, and, and fine handmade things. And I think that people will always continue to appreciate them. But I think it's also needlework has and often is related to identity, to patterns that societies and communities have passed down, sometimes from community, to, from generation to generation, sometimes within the same family. I also think that the process of needlework and of stitching is a wonderful one because it's there's a meditative quality to it. And the applique work, the work people that I know in the street of the tent makers in Cairo, for them, they're doing something productive, but it's also a release. It's a, almost a meditation. Mm -hmm. Listen to their favorites. So, so it's not just what you produce, but also the process of producing it. Sometimes that process can be individual. Sometimes it's people producing things for a large textile in which four people will contribute. So I think that its role is partially to continue this very long tradition of producing beautiful, personal, idiosyncratic things. Sometimes it's to pass identity and tradition and convention, not necessarily in a static way. Sometimes I think the beautiful things or things that evolve, a color might be different or you can change the scale. And at times... Needlework and stitching are very beautiful ways of bringing people together. Mm, totally. And I think, of course, I mean, any craft needs to be viable to survive. And I mean, often, often needlework and stitching and sewing are ways of making a living. Yeah. I mean, from the practical to the personal, to the creative, to everything in between. It's true. And you're right when you say... It's the movement, right? It's the process of the making of the thing. You're always, whether it's putting a needle through fabric or moving a shuttle across a loom, like there's always that movement there. And then there's also the movement on top of it of these objects more generally as they move across the world. Mm -hmm. mm, I like that. Yes. Thank you. Okay. How can people learn more about your work? And do you have anything you would like to promote? <laughs> One way, yeah. 
if people are interested in Egyptian applique work and the social aspects behind this tradition of textiles for ce celebrations and the creation of temporary space, uh, they could read the book that I co-wrote with Sam yeah. Bowker, uh, which is about the tent makers of Cairo. You can find it on Amazon. Um, I've also written, and Sam Bowker has also written articles about the subject. So um, if you want to find out more, just search for my name and textiles and you'll probably find things. Um, and I periodically, because I'm interested in the continuity of the, the applique work craft in Egypt, I periodically organize exhibitions that are about con the contemporary craft. Um, and so the, I probably the next one will be next spring. So um, I'll let you know about it beforehand. But Thanks. I'm very interested in how can tradition survive and evolve and celebrate the past, but also look towards the future. Love that. Yes. Safe. thank you so much. This has been such a joy. I have learned an incredible amount of stuff. I will be haunted in the best way by the pot with the laundry list forever. Um, <laughs> thank you for all of the knowledge. Thanks for sharing it with me and everybody who listens. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you and your great enthusiasm. Hi again. I don't know about you, but I learned a lot in this interview. We love to learn. There are so many things, so many notes I can end on, so many themes that kept coming up. I'm choosing to focus on the joy of color and the thread of humanity that runs through all of the Egyptian textiles safe discussed. But before I ruminate on those, I want to expand ever so slightly on my comment in the interview about lots of English sampler motifs coming from Egypt. That is something that has been noted in the scholarship and I find it absolutely fascinating. My favorite thing is that you can really see similarities between figures in Coptic weaving and boxers, which are these mysterious male figures that appear on lots of 17th century English band samplers. It's quite clear that these sorts of figures moved across the world, along the Silk Road and beyond, and they became bastardized and lost their significance and got a little funky and then appeared on schoolgirl needlework halfway across the world. It's very cool. Anyway. Back to color and humanity. The theme of humanity is one that comes up a lot on this podcast. This idea that we can feel the human touch, the touch of an individual even, in lots of needlework. That's one of the main reasons I study needlework, because in and through needlework, I can see and feel the identity and preferences and passions of people who have been gone for decades and centuries. I can connect to people who are just like me and you, separated from us by the passage of time and history's tendency to forget the vast majority of people who ever lived. Egyptian textiles are glorious because there are so many of them to study, so many millennia of human hands reaching out towards us through textiles. Something that hasn't really come up on the podcast thus far is the joy of color. I've talked about the joy of needleworked softness and sparkle and texture and pattern, but not about color specifically. I think Safe speaks for a lot of people when he says that one of the reasons he loves textiles is because of their color. He loves the vibrancy and variations of color possible within those objects. Oftentimes, when studying historic needlework, it's easy to forget that these objects were originally pretty bright, full of bold reds and rich blues and all that good stuff. Not every piece was bright, of course, but lots were. And even though lots of old needlework has faded over time and is no longer super vibrant, 
I think that that actually leaves us with the capacity to imagine and to dream about an object's richness and to find joy in the possibility of color. Not only can we ponder and imagine needlework's makers and the worlds in which they lived, we can envision those worlds and their stitching in full living color. And on a a slightly philosophical note, I'll say adieu for this episode. Thank you so much to Safe for a wonderful interview, and thank you to you all for listening. Can you believe this is So What's 65th episode? That is so many episodes. Here's to many more, though. Now go out and stitch some stories and check out Coptic Weaving, because I bet you've never seen little human figures so charming. Bye! (laughs) Bye!